News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's no telling yet just how much damage has been caused by Hurricane Ian plowing into Florida. But boy, is it ever extensive. I'm sure you've seen some of these pictures, but let's find out more about what's going on now with the help of Global News correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Where are you and what's it like? We are in Sarasota, Florida, so about an hour away from Tampa and about an hour north, just over an hour north from some of the most uh, hardest hits parts uh, of this state. Here in Sarasota, this really was a wind storm yesterday. We had a lot of rain. There's a bit of flooding in some of the lower lying areas of the city with a lot of clogged drains. uh, So this water is just simply unable to get anywhere. Uh, But it is down trees, down power lines uh, and and a lack of power here in Sarasota. A couple of hundred thousand people uh, are sitting without power and have so for the last 24 hours further south from here where the eye came on shore through Naples through Fort Myers through Sanibel Island uh, the damage is catastrophic the damage is still unknown and unassessed because it is so impossible for emergency crews to try and get into the hardest hit areas okay so we're still waiting to hear more about that now we also know though Reggie there were a lot of people who ignored evacuation orders what happened in some of those cases Yeah, look, two and a half million people in this state were under an evacuation order. Two and a half million people did not put themselves into higher ground or into a shelter. Uh, And because of that, uh, there is a real risk here that this is going to be not only a storm where it's a loss of property, but a storm where it's a loss of life. We know hundreds of thousands of people, especially along the coastline, opted to try and ride this storm out. And whether, you know, it's money, whether it's moxie, whether it's just an inability to be able to move out of the home... That's going to be problematic. Yesterday we heard the 911 systems across the state started to go out, so it was impossible for people to try and call for help, but local officials and the governor had said emergency vehicles were not on the street, they were not going to come for help. It could be days before that happens, and we've seen some of the water at rooftops in some cities. Yeah, it really looks like that That storm surge has been huge. Do we know what the hardest hit areas are right now? You, the you hardest hit couple, areas, yeah. yeah. So, so we just within the last uh, uh, hour or so, we saw some images coming out of, of Sanibel Island, uh, where the causeway that connects it to the mainland, uh, about sixty meters, uh, sixty feet uh, of that of that causeway, were washed away. So now it is almost impossible to get to that part uh, of the state. Through Naples, uh, half of the streets are impassable. The water is three and four meters deep. That is the same through parts of Fort Myer, uh, and we're actually starting to see low-level flooding across inland parts of the state, up into Orlando, where the storm system has stalled out, that is going to become the kind of story of the day. The receding waters in the south, the impending waters in the north, this is a waterlogged state right now. Oh boy, okay, and so how long is this expected to last? Like, has the storm passed over Florida now? The storm is still moving across Florida, and it's down towards a tropical storm strength, but that doesn't mean that the damage is going to be any less intense. There's a lot of moisture that's locked up in this storm, and it is going to dump that over Orlando, in through Jacksonville. Both of the airports in those cities have been shut down today. It's expected to then exit the state, go back over the Atlantic, and then re-enter the U.S. somewhere on the Carolina coast. So there are now states of emergency in place across South Carolina, North Carolina, into Virginia, and through parts of Georgia as well. really is going to leave a mark on the state. And I think that there is a secondary story in here, and at least when it comes to Florida, Simi, and that's that uh, the cost of doing insurance in this state is simply too much now. And more than a dozen insurance companies have pulled out in the last year or so 
which leaves hundreds of thousands of people in this state without any ability to try and rebuild after that storm. I think that this is going to be one of those storms that's considered generational, and the damages are not going to be something that are just fixed in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Oh, boy. All right. Well, stay safe, Reggie. Thank you so much for the update. Thank you. So Reggie Giacchini there, our global news correspondent, normally in Washington, but in Florida right now, covering the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. And uh, aftermath, it hasn't even really fully left Florida yet. So he mentioned, uh, you know, the impact of it, this being potentially a generational, once in a generation storm could actually be more than that. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis just wrapped up a press conference that he's been having this morning, giving updates on the situation he said that the amount of water that has been rising, he considered. He said that they consider this to be basically a 500-year flood event in the state of Florida. That's how bad it is there. Uh, they have more than 2 million customers without power across the state. That number is actually likely higher than that. Uh, and they've also said at that press conference this morning, this is an historic storm. And they're still trying to assess the extent of the damage. And today, they said officials, is about identifying the people who need help and who may still be in harm's way. And that's the thing. They don't know, right? As the storm was raging, they could not help people. They told people that. And an awful lot of people had decided to ride this thing out and didn't want to heed the warnings about how bad this storm was going to be. So really, there's not a full picture right now of the devastation that Hurricane Ian has wrought in Florida. But that will be happening as the day progresses. And of course, that's not the end of the storm either. It's headed back out to the warmer waters of the ocean where they think it could pick up some steam again, build back up, and then likely to hit land Again, a little farther up the coast, maybe the state of Georgia, uh, sometime tomorrow afternoon. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to have a little chat with Roger Sohal this morning. Oh boy, and this is an interesting idea. The fact that your boss could maybe, well, fire you for something that you did on your own time. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, Spectrum News in New York fired their on-air talent. This is a meteorologist named Eric Adam. He does their morning weather news. He's an award-winning fellow. He's very popular with their viewers. Well, they fired him after someone took nude. uh, Someone took nude pictures of him from his. He had this adult webcam performance thing that he was doing. I don't know the exact details of that aspect, but they got leaked to the employer along with his mother. And then the pictures kept coming. Whomever this person was, this anonymous person that leaked the photos, they had a lot of them. So the employer might also be worrying, okay, how many more of these photos are there out there? And the existing ones, they are going to circulate online and social media forever. And so the question is, should he be fired for that or not? He has been getting so much support online from people who say, hey, you did this in your own time. You didn't do it at work. You didn't uh, do this publicly. You did it privately too. So this, you should not be fired for this. Other folks are saying, hang on, you work in a very public facing position, (laughs) television personality for crying out loud. So at some point, the employee is a representation of the brand in public. And now, Simi, that's an idea that I have been instilled with since very young, that you're a reflection of your employer. That means you don't get drunk. You don't send nudes. You do not do anything that would look bad 
upon your employer. But this, I think, Simi, is changing well, fast. Is that a, maybe it's a generational thing, but I think there's a, a special circumstance as well in this case, because as you pointed out, he has a very high profile job. Now that comes with certain responsibilities. And I'm sure there was even a clause probably in his contract that said he could not, should not do anything that would embarrass the company, right? And that is because, like, you know, lots of workers, they wouldn't need to worry about that. If this was somebody who worked in a different area that wasn't as public, you would say, yeah, you can do what you want on your own time. I feel like this is different because of the job, though, that he was doing. Uh, it's different because of the job. But do you remember the Stanley Cup riots and all those images that, that went out about, uh, you know, this person did that, I recognize this person and all the shaming or whatever. That was an instance, too, when the, these people were not necessarily on TV or on radio. Well, uh, didn't have you know what? Facing jobs. I'm going to disagree with that one because I, mean, I covered that extensively. I was actually here at CKNW when that happened. And a lot of this was stuff that people themselves had posted on social media. And I didn't have a problem with going after people. Like, I understand you make mistakes, you get caught up at the moment, all of that. I understood that. But when you're posing for a camera, smiling, you know, holding something that you just stolen out of a store, that I say, you know what, I'm sorry, but we can't save you from yourself at that point. Yeah, but there were also people who were just like in the general crowd who got outed for and and they got in trouble from their employers who were just in the general crowd of the rioters in the in the groups who weren't necessarily stealing anything um, who got in trouble from their employers too. And some people say uh, employers should be totally separate. But I think, Simi, interestingly, this is going to become a bigger problem for employers because the younger generations, people younger than me, they really identify with their uh, right to pursue their interests outside of work and that they shouldn't be in any way tethered to the employer, that they should be able to have this outside life entirely. They feel really entitled to that. And so I think this is going to become more of an issue. Plus, like just the social media has exploded in the last 10 years. And so people will do this more, I think. And it's very interesting to see who he's gotten support from. Uh, He's been supported by some uh, very public facing individuals who are in government and uh, celebrities have come out in support of him, too. So it'll be interesting to watch this one unfold. You're right. I think you're talking about a generation that has been raised with social media, right? So up until now, you've had generations of people who learned to use social media. But this upcoming generation that's coming into the workplace, they've always had it. It has been a part of their lives from day one, whether it's their parents posting pictures of them as babies, you know, maybe their whole childhoods, everything has been online. So for them, I can see how they'll get into the workplace and think, well, wait a minute, that's not separate. I've been doing this long before I started work here. So I'm guessing this is something that employers are going to have to grapple with. Yeah, I remember one time when I started working in television and I was at a party where uh, people were doing uh, illicit drugs and I wasn't expecting to see that at this party. People, other folks just had drinks on them and I just quickly left. I quickly left because I did not want to be caught up in something that was going to embarrass the employer. I didn't want to be a part of it. And uh, I, w- I remember telling that story to someone who's about 10 years younger than me and in the same industry. Uh, and they said, what? But you weren't doing it and you're not around it and you weren't even hanging out with them. And I said, oh, it's about perception, isn't it? It's about what people think might be going on yeah, too. And an I think thing. if you have a yeah, you have a public-facing position. you got to be thinking of that stuff. Absolutely. I, but again, we might be dating ourselves here. We, we might are. be aging <laughs> ourselves with that. But we will find out. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, is it a post-win bounce, as many leadership you know, candidates often have, or is something else going on here? There is some changing afoot when it comes to people's preferences in federal politics, and this is shown to us by polling done by Ipsos exclusively for Global News. And now to break it all down for us, Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, is with us. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what did you find that was so interesting this time? Well, we, it looks like it's a bounce for the conservatives. We see them about five points ahead in terms of uh, uh, voter support. But also, Pierre Polyev's the preferred choice as prime minister for, uh, by four over, uh, over uh, Justin Trudeau. But it seems to be less of an uh, uh, increase for the conservatives and for Polyev as it is a decline for the liberals and the prime minister. So the, the, it, what we saw during the course of the summer was that really the only people who were paying a lot of attention to what was going on right. in the conservative leadership campaign were conservative partisans. The general public has really not woken up to the fact that there's a new conservative leader yet. So the number of undecideds is actually quite high. So what we're seeing is the reaction to what's going on in the current public environment, which is really being driven by mostly inflation and cost of living issues. Okay, so this is, you know, this is almost inevitable sometimes that the a new leader gets a bit of a bounce, though, isn't it? It, it, it is, but we haven't seen much bounce for new conservative leaders over the space of the last while. We did see, you know, a bit for Andrew Scheer when he came in. We did see a bit for Aaron O'Toole, but they didn't really last that long. Both leaders, by the way, were competitive with the prime minister, similar to what we're showing uh, with uh, with uh, the new leader, Pierre Polyev. But as I said before, it's not like there's been a big escalation in conservative support as a result of this. It's really been more of a liberal decline. They're losing support to the NDP and the Bloc Québécois as well. Okay, so that sound, that's the interesting part about all this, right? But after seven years in power, you would think that, some, that there would be some kind of fatigue setting in, too. Yeah, only about a third of Canadians say that the government deserves to be reelected. That's, you know, pretty close to what they actually got in the last election campaign, which was enough to win. But it doesn't look like the momentum, you know, that they're building any sort of momentum out of that last election campaign. And now that the Conservatives have changed their leader, and there's another option for people to take a look at, they're taking a look. The interesting thing about from, about Polyev for me is that as the feelings, uh, you know, either positive or negative, they're small groups of people. Most people are kind of in the middle or undecided. Okay, and were there changes regionally on this that were noticeable? Yeah, what we're seeing is that the only strength that the Liberal Party seems to have at the moment is west of Ontario, or east of Ontario, sorry. So province of Quebec, they're still competitive, although it's with uh, the Bloc Québécois. In Atlantic Canada, they're still ahead. But, you know, anybody who knows anything about the math of Canadian politics is that's not enough to get you anything. So you have to be doing well in Ontario, and right now the Conservatives are ahead by seven. Wow. Okay. And even in BC, I noticed too that it's neck and neck when it comes to preference for prime minister. Yeah. And that just shows you that people are kind of waking up to the fact that there might be another option out there. And they're certainly going to be evaluating Mr. Polyev. And, you know, we've seen similar things like this. Uh, you know, for example, when Kim Campbell, also from British Columbia, came in and became the leader of the, uh, of, uh, the uh, Progressive Conservative Party way back when, uh, there was a, an intense level of interest as people tried to sort it out. Still a lot of undecided. She got some fairly positive approval, but it went away really fast. So this introduction of Mr. Polyev uh, to the Canadian public, and he's still going through it, is going to be crucial to the view that they have of him going into the next election campaign. The Conservatives are going to be trying to put his uh, Polyev's best uh, position out there, but you also know that the Liberals and the NDP are going to be going at his worst features. Oh boy, Daryl, this makes your job so much more interesting now, doesn't it, for the next little while? <laughs> 
It does. It's going to be a dark time. And I was describing it to somebody this morning. Think winter in the Arctic. Oh, <laughs> because boy. The, the pro- because the problem the liberals have is, you know, there's no policy that they're really ahead on that Canadians care about. Their leader is now a drag on their ticket. Uh, they're not seen favorably in terms of their record relative to uh, being reelected. So all they've got left is the opportunity to paint uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Polyev in, in a really negative way. And if you live through the 2004, 2006 campaigns, same issue with Stephen Harper. You're going to see them go very, very hard on Mr. Polyev. And the unfortunate thing for Mr. Polyev is giving them lots to work with. Oh, so interesting. All right, Daryl, thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there was so much hope and optimism around the idea that there was going to be a Formula E electric car race here in Vancouver. There's events worldwide for this, and it was coming to the city. And boy, people were really excited about this, so much so that thousands and thousands of tickets were sold for this event. In fact, the OSS group, or the One Stop Strategy Group, says they sold an estimated 30,000 tickets to the July 2nd Canadian E-Fest that was supposed to go on. And then it abruptly announced that the event had been postponed. Now, that happened in April. They said, oh, everybody's going to get their money back and we'll figure out what's happening. But here, now we are, almost October, and people have no idea what is happening with their tickets, with their money. It's turned into a bit of a mess, actually. Richard Chang is with us now, a lawyer with Diamond and Diamond Lawyers in Vancouver. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so what's going on here for the people who have tickets? Um, well, we at Diamond and Diamond, we're just uh, in the process of finalizing um, our pleadings uh, that we intend to file here in British Columbia. We've been approached uh, by a number of people since the last time I was on your show. Uh, I think Jill was hosting. Um, private individuals and businesses alike who purchase tickets and have been unable to receive um, refunds from uh, One Stop Strategy. Um, And some of them, you know, a few hundred dollars, but uh, um, some of the individuals that contacted me, especially the corporate sponsors, tens of thousands of dollars that they're out and still waiting on refunds from. So you're saying nobody has gotten their money back? No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, Some individuals have had some success getting refunds through their credit card by doing a chargeback, Um, but directly from one-stop strategy, one-stop strategy, I haven't heard of anyone saying that they've uh, uh, been uh, paid a refund back from uh, OSS. Wow. Okay. So then what are the next steps here? Um, The next step for us, uh, we've, uh, as I said, spoken to a number of people. We've uh, obtained uh, the details from these individuals and copies of their receipts. Uh, We're uh, in the process of uh, doing the final draft of our pleadings, and uh, we expect to be filing a uh, class uh, proceeding in British Columbia very soon. Okay, so now, Richard, what is the process for something like this, though? Like, normally when an event is cancelled, what legal rights do ticket holders have? The, uh, I took a look at the terms and services uh, um, on the uh, EFAST website, and they indicated uh, under the, the contractual um, uh, terms, um, if the event was cancelled, that the um, ticket holder would get uh, uh, get a refund, and, and just to simplify it. Uh, um, we take this as a position of this is a breach of contract. They um, offered a service, uh, it was never delivered, and uh, the ticket holders that purchased uh, these tickets uh, should be entitled to a recovery. Okay. Has this happened before? Is there any other precedent for something like this? Not that uh, I can think of off the top of my head, um, but uh, at the end of the day, it's it's a contractual issue. Right. Okay. So, But this sounds like a lot of mess for ticket holders to go through. And as you point out, some of them, it might just be a couple of hundred dollars. 
Yes, that's exactly it, and which is the frustration, uh, especially in the economy that we're in. Um, that, that few hundred dollars could make a difference for some individuals, and yeah. uh, um, they, they've come to us uh, expressing that frustration. Yeah, I can imagine. So is this company communicative at all? Uh, we haven't uh, reached out to them and spoken to them. We've just uh, been looking at the correspondence that uh, ticket holders and the company have had. And some of them have, have had numerous chains uh, with respect to um, promises of refunds coming but never actually being delivered. Okay, then. So then, Richard, if somebody is holding a ticket for this event and they've had no luck getting their money back, what should they do? Um, they can get in touch with us. We're, we're putting together a list of affected individuals. Uh, you, they can give me a call, uh, uh, sorry, send me an email, it's probably the easiest, r-c-h-a-n-g at diamondlaw.ca, and I'll shoot it off to my team, and uh, they've been compiling a, a list of uh, affected parties. Right, and some people have been successful in doing like a chargeback on their on their credit cards too, haven't they? Yes, some individuals have been successful, um, and um, uh, some individuals contacted us, and eventually their credit cards, they charge uh, back uh, the fees. Some of them have indicated that the credit cards have uh, put a charge back, but it may um, get charge billed back to them. And some credit cards have told them it's been just too long uh, that they can't do a charge right. back. So we, we're seeing a mix of individuals, but the, the ones that are really affected are the, also the ones who don't have the option of credit card chargebacks. Uh, there have been some individuals that paid by debits or um, some, uh, some individuals also, if they were making larger ticket purchases, uh, such as corporate buyers, uh, they, um, they wired their, uh, their fees over to OSS. And these are the individuals who are out tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. Okay. All right. More to come on that. Richard, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Richard Chang, a lawyer with Diamond and Diamond Lawyers in Vancouver. They are talking about suing the organizers of that cancelled Formula E electric car race. Remember how much excitement there was about this? It was originally scheduled in Vancouver. Tens of thousands of tickets were sold by the OSS group, and then they postponed it. But they postponed it and pretty much been cancelled because it does, it's not going ahead. There is no date on the calendar. They haven't been communicative about that at all. Meanwhile, organizers initially said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll give you information about refunds in July. Well, that has come and gone months ago. And ticket holders say they haven't heard anything. Now, this is not just here. This has happened elsewhere as well. I know in Montreal they had a lot of issues. So there are now different lawsuits. This is Mornings with Simi. Things in Russia and Ukraine have taken a turn this week. We've got, of course, all the issues surrounding the military conscription that is going on. We've got the Nord Stream pipeline situation, a fourth leak now being reported off the southern part of Sweden. There are concerns that that was sabotage. And now you've got Russia coming out, Russian President Vladimir Putin attending a ceremony expected in the next 24 hours where he will annex essentially four regions of Ukraine and make that official. All of this, of course, is contributing to heightened tensions. Joining us now is Pam Falke, CBS News UN correspondent to talk more about this. She will be joining us in just a moment. But yes, the situation out of Russia has not changed. We have seen more pictures of lineups at the border to get into countries like Finland and reports that conscription was happening in those lineups as well. Uh, And also no attention being paid to age limits in this or uh, previous injuries that have happened, a very kind of different Uh, conscription that they have seen in the past for sure. So now let's find out more about this with Pam Falk, CBS News, UN correspondent. Pam, thanks for being here. 
Good morning. It's been quite a series of days. And today, Russia confirmed that uh, that uh, it will annex parts of Ukraine. And what does that mean exactly, Pam? Can you explain to us the significance of that? Yeah, it means that they will actually consider them part of Russia. What they said is they will sign treaties, uh, these four regions, which is um, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Luhansk, and Donetsk. They're all in the east. Now, you may, you, you, I know you've covered, because I've heard your coverage, of Zaporizhia. That's where the nuclear, the largest nuclear plant in Europe is, uh, the power plant, and what has been shelled. So uh, that, that has put that aside for a second, because that has its own implications. But the idea here to answer your question is that these become part of Russia and they sign treaties. They're now just part of Russia. And so they've moved the, the, the border of Ukraine, essentially. And um, it's, um, it's a conquest. It's taking occupied territory. And they occupied this Basically, most of this territory, not all, but not Zaporizhia, but um, a few, but um, Luhansk and Donetsk after 2014. So what they're saying is this is part of Ukraine. Now, to take it back, what that means is that now Ukraine is not defending itself if it, it tries to take it back. It's hitting Russia, which gives Russia the pretext to use any kind of weapons. And, of course, you've heard uh, Russia's President Putin say that he will use all weapons in his arsenal and implying nuclear weapons. Right. It's okay. Scary. Yeah, that's very scary. So what has this been like? Like, What has been the reaction among other countries around the world, not just to what you just explained there, but also the Nord Stream pipeline situation? Like, what are other countries? Is it ratcheting up that tension? It's totally ratcheting up the tension. And um, the, 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 what we've heard during High Level Week, which just ended Tuesday, um, on Monday night at the United Nations, we heard from um, Prime Minister Trudeau. We heard from President Biden. We heard from almost every leader in the world, with the sole exception of a muted response, but still not a supportive response of Russia of China. So all of them said no one's going to believe it. And what um, the U.S. has, uh, what President Biden said specifically was there is we will never accept that these are now part of Russia because it's 2022. It's not 2014. And so um, everyone has pictures and videos of armed guards going door to door. So this 99% support the, the referendum, everyone knows, is just a pretext. And the UN is, is um, now, both the U.S. and Albania are getting a referendum ready to uh, pass either uh, Friday uh, or early next week to say this is a sham. Hmm. Okay, so... More to come on that. So is this being discussed at the United Nations, though, Pam, or is this being left to kind of NATO and other individual and and European Union countries? Oh, it's totally being discussed at the United Nations. So 
that's one is that there was a uh, Ukraine meeting after the high level week uh, just yesterday um, to uh, I'm sorry, Tuesday to um, to say, look, this is not acceptable. This whole idea of annexing territory. I mean, think of World War Two. If if occupied territory becomes part of the land of that country, um, uh, think of any war. And um, the U.N. is trying to make sure that the message goes to Russia and those protesting. And there are now more than there were saying that this is not how you take you, you, you can't take land of a sovereign state in this in 2022 and so um that that's that you're hearing it around the world but you're certainly hearing it at the un and then of course there's this sabotage and all all sides basically believe that Nord Stream one and two have been sabotaged and that is um what uh, now uh, the basic finger has been pointed at russia this is the baltic sea gas pipeline that goes between europe and Russia, and mm-hmm. Russia is saying the U.S. sabotaged it. So a lot of finger pointing on that, but it's pretty clear that uh, Europe is going to have a very hard time this winter yeah. with um, with the heating. Oh boy! All right, Pam, thank you so much for that. All right, nice talking to you, and hope everyone's well post hurricane. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. Well, we hope so too, but we were okay with that. That's Pam Falk, yes, CBS United Nations correspondent. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, when I see this video or pictures of this video of an Indigenous man and his granddaughter in handcuffs outside a bank in downtown Vancouver, it still, to this day, makes my blood boil, just makes my head explode. Because I think, why would you do this? Why would you put a young girl like that in handcuffs? Why would you put anybody in handcuffs until you've actually figured out what is going on? It, it just boggles the mind, right? And that was more than two years ago when I think that story really exploded into the public consciousness that it happened outside a bank in downtown Vancouver. An Indigenous man and his granddaughter had that happen to them. It was Maxwell Johnson and Torian. And now, after all this time, they have announced that they have reached a settlement with Vancouver police on this. And they said this was a two-year collaborative policymaking process. Uh, they are they are content with what they have agreed to. They said the settlement reflects an understanding that the discriminatory conduct was symptomatic of more systemic issues relating to how police view and treat Indigenous peoples. And they they so they go on to say that that includes measures aimed at identifying and addressing systemic policing issues. So that now ends the legal action against the Vancouver police on this situation. How significant is this? Joining us now is Rachel Ensnow, an Indigenous legal advocate, to talk more about it. Rachel, thank you so much for being back with us. Uh, good morning, Simi. Before I say anything else, very sorry. I was sick with COVID and missed the last time we talked, but today is just uh, spur of the moment, so I'm glad I'm able to make up the time. <laughs> well, I'm glad you could do it. I hope you're feeling better, right? That oh, is yes, not That is not Thank good. You. That thing is going around like crazy these days. Um, yeah, I finally succumbed, so. Oh, oh, awful. I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad you could join us to talk about this important story this morning, because how, how significant is this? It sounds like Maxwell Johnson is content with this settlement. Uh, yes, I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always difficult because can't put myself in uh, the shoes of the people who actually un- were, you know, were were suffered or suffered or 
caused the harm in in this matter, but it's really difficult to settle this because what is what's happening is this was an individual is, incident, but it so affects us at, at a collective level, and you know it, it vibrates through our communities because a lot of people can relate to similar incidences. Yeah, do you think that's what made this one a little bit different is that we had that video, we had those pictures, and people just said, listen, there is no cause for this. Yes, I think that, I think it really mattered, the optics of that mattered, because a young girl and an elder, that's the way I looked at it, was like um, an elder who was trying to sort of uh, do a, make a reconciliation, reconciliation action. He was trying to introduce his, you know, granddaughter into, uh, you know, conducting herself and setting up something so that she understood. And you know, it was probably a moment of pride for him and her to go in there and set this up and then to be treated in such a manner where they ended up in handcuffs. That's, that's beyond, you know, that's totally unacceptable. And so how significant to you then, Rachel, and when you see what, you know, that the settlement says that they are happy with this, that they, they believe this is a learning point. Do you believe that as an acknowledgement you know, from police, from the bank, that, okay, we did wrong here? Well, I think at at some point, yes. But again, because, you know, the and this frequently happens uh, with a Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, Canadian Human Rights uh, uh, Courts, is that uh, they want a settlement so that it will not be a court case on the books so that it doesn't create precedent. And then when it doesn't create precedence, you can't draw upon that in case law because then you're going to be making a stronger argument. Okay, so does this mean that there is no precedent? Well, yeah, if, if they take a settlement and it's, you know, hush, hush, and some of the part, kind of areas are released about that, we're not getting the full picture. Ah, okay, right? so you're still a little bit skeptical then about this. Oh yeah, I, I'm always skeptical. <laughs> I'm always skeptical. <laughs> I just I don't think that uh, because again, there are so many times like uh, smudging in houses where people are forced to take uh, a settlement, and you know the Can- Canadian Human Rights uh, boards or tribunals in the provinces will say, well, look, you know, if you don't take the settlement, it's going to come back to us. We're going to say it was very, we're thinking it's very reasonable, you know, at the court level. But, you know, do what you're going to do. So you basically have to take whatever they're offering you so that it doesn't go to court, doesn't go to trial, doesn't go to a hearing, and then create precedent so that other people have that sort of ballpark number or or build off of that or, you know, um, uh, springboard off of that. So I don't know. Um, And again, you know, it, it happens across the board, every province nationally, uh, provincially. Right. How significant was public pressure, do you think, in this case? I think public pressure was very significant. I think because of the video and the release that uh, public pressure really assisted the family in accessing, you know, what they believe to be as, you know, some sort of justice. Right. Okay. So you feel like, they hopefully, are you hopeful at all there might be some progress no. as a result? No. <laughs> no. Didn't even get to finish that. You no, are very I, sorry. I don't think so. I think that, you know, a system that is inherently based on racism and the colonial violence that is part of Canada's history, until we, you know, we're talking about, we're two days away from truth and reconciliation. I think that was uh, another thing that uh, was influencing this is that, you know, they want to go uh, tomorrow or be part of uh, all celebrations or whatever they're doing, acknowledgements, as saying, you know, we did something. So there was like that, 
there's always that little bit of a rush to get this done by a significant date. So, no, I'm not. Uh, no, I, there's too many things that are happening, ongoing issues, the continuance, you know, of discrimination because it's it's inherently ba- built into a racist. We're built into a racist system. So how can we fix that? How can we fix attitudes? Right. Well, I think little by little, right, is how we do it. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Okay, thank you as well, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That's Rachel Ann Snow, an Indigenous legal advocate, talking about the case of Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter. Remember that video? Remember those pictures in handcuffs outside the bank in downtown Vancouver? All because he tried to teach her how to open up a bank account, and that was what happened. Some teller didn't, you know, didn't believe their documentation, and then it just spiraled from there. But putting a child in handcuffs, just like unbelievable the frustration was huge on that one and i know the anger my own anger even thinking about it seeing those pictures is still so big on this so there has been a settlement that maxwell johnson is satisfied with they believe that this reflects an understanding they said that the discriminatory conduct was symptomatic of more systemic issues so what will be the result of that that is what we have to wait and see this is mornings with simi Tomorrow marks the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And so I think a lot of people out there are wondering, well, how can I do this right? How can I honor this day? How can I make it meaningful? Well, for more on that, we're joined now by our Raji Sohal. Good morning. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I think last year when it was announced that people would have the day off of work on September 30, I heard such a range of emotions. A lot of people said this is great and we'll take the day to reflect. But I also did hear some skepticism, including from people in the Indigenous communities, uh, that the commemorative holiday essentially was only going to matter if if people used the day somehow, if they'd use it to mark truth and reconciliation in, in some kind of meaningful way. And I think we did see that last year in a big way. I saw a lot of people starting to have conversations with friends, with family, uh, or taking the time to reflect. And schools have asked families to wear orange shirts to school today, which is a great conversation starter to talk to kids about that story of Phyllis Webstad, the girl who had her new orange shirt taken from her on the first day of residential school. And then it can go into a larger conversation and an ongoing conversation. So I think last year made such a big impact on September 30. But there was a group, a small group here in Vancouver that really mobilized, got into action last year and are doing it again this year. So at the thought of having a day off of work on September 30 to take some kind of reconciliatory action, Josh Hensman, uh, who's a community organizer for the city, he thought, okay, government's giving us the day off of work. Why don't I donate that one day's pay to an Indigenous organization? And then he thought, hmm, what if we all do that? So he met with an Indigenous group here in Vancouver, Circle of Philanthropy, to figure out the best way to go about that. They created a website. It's onedayspay.ca. You can check it out. And it's basically, it's like a a portal for learning, a really, really great place to start for engaging in just a bit deeper on Indigenous issues. But also you can make a donation there. And people did make a donation last year uh, to the tune of half a million dollars in total. That's how much uh, Josh's initiative took off, that half a million dollars was raised here uh, for one day's pay to go to different Indigenous uh, organizations in Vancouver and broader BC. Here's Josh. 
So when I first heard about the, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, I did feel really conflicted. I do agree that there should be a national day to recognize the harm done and being done through Indigenous peoples here in Canada, but it just didn't seem like enough for me to, you know, think about that and have a day off and be paid for that. So I committed to give my one day's pay to Indigenous organizations and, you know, I was really hopeful that, that other Canadians would feel the same way as me and be prepared to take action. And and they totally did. <laughs> For me, privilege is having a, um, a head start compared to some other people. Um, so I was, you know, raised with a close family. Um, that's, you know, that's a privilege. Um, I, uh, I happen to be like a white male that also could be seen as, as a privilege. Um, there are just, you know, some advantages like that have um, not been advantages that I've necessarily asked for, but, but advantages that, that are inherently part of like kind of who I am and what I look like that I got to benefit from. And so um, I think trying to help people that don't have those same privileges uh, is, is something that, that we should all be thinking about and, and trying to take action on if and when we can. I knew that my one day's pay wouldn't go very far, but I had a feeling that, you know, if I could get a hundred or a thousand or however many other people involved, that what we could do and the funds that we could raise would make a real impact. And in fact, that, that did happen last year and, and we raised almost half a million dollars for the organizations that we were featuring as part of the campaign. That is just incredible. And so you were correct in that a lot of people also wanted to donate their one day's pay. And I, I think it's uh, it's interesting to acknowledge too that it wasn't just people that were donating a day's pay. People, Some people were donating more than that. Some people were donating um, you know, what they could, which, um, you know, in some ways is, is as meaningful or more meaningful than, than people that could afford to donate a whole day's pay. What do you understand differently from having started One Day's Pay Initiative last year? I think that it's really important to have conversations about truth and reconciliation with friends and family. I think that it's really important to, to recognize that Indigenous folks uh, need space around this time. Um, they are often dealing with some like serious uh, emotional um, things going on related to uh, September 30th, and it's it's good I think for uh, for other Canadians just to just to realize that and and to give them space at this time. Oh, that is so interesting. Then it sounds like they were pleasantly surprised by how many people took them up on this. <laughs> they sure were, and totally just heartwarming to see that that many people care. I like that Josh mentioned there too that not everybody can afford to give up a one day's pay, um, but that they can donate whatever they can. And if that's nothing in terms of money, you can still go on their website, onedayspay.ca, and check out all the resources that they have on there. It's a great learning tool to start to engage just a bit deeper with those Indigenous issues and learn more about these communities that we need to reconcile further with. You know, this National Truth and Reconciliation Day tomorrow is, is a real, I think, learning experience for us because we don't want to treat it like just a holiday, right? It shouldn't be just another day off or another stat holiday. There has to be some meaning attached to it, but this is new for us, isn't it? 
it's new for us. I feel like last year got so much attention and everybody I felt like around me was talking about it. Also, we were fresh out of the horrific news about the unmarked grave. So it was very much on everybody's minds. Now this year, I have been told that, you know, some Indigenous uh, members of the community are feeling a bit worried that folks might have charity fatigue. They might have uh, donating fatigue or they might be over these issues. Um, And you know what, Simi, there's a lot of issues out there that are pressing on people's minds right now. What's nice about September 30 is it is a day set aside for all of us to do what we can. So whatever you're able to do on your level, make a donation or just engage deeper with those issues, have conversations with your family. I'm I'm really impressed with how far the school boards have come with uh, teaching kids about Indigenous issues and histories in their curriculum. And so, you know, I actually am learning from my kids right now, too. They're telling me things they learned at daycare and in grade one at school about uh, September 30 and how the different ways that we can commemorate Okay, so what is that um, website one more time? So it's one, O-N-E, one days pay.ca. All their donation buttons are live right now, so you don't have to wait to, until tomorrow to make that donation. You can go ahead right now if you want and make a donation at one days pay.ca. All right, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it may have been, what, 20 years since the Vancouver Grizzlies moved to Memphis, but I'd have to say for a lot of us fans, our hearts still have not healed. They are still broken. And now there's a new film to, well, maybe help us out with that, to show us exactly what happened. It's called The Grizzly Truth, and it explores how Vancouver lost our NBA franchise and where a lot of the players who played for the team are today. So before we talk to the filmmaker, uh, let's have a listen to a little clip from this movie. You know, I get to Vancouver. I just look forward to learning more about the city of Vancouver and learning more about the people here. And uh, I'll be seeing you around. What you got at that press conference was a confused 22-year-old who still trying to let people know that he's that's not him who just made that sad face, who's still confused if he's going to play the one or the two, who's still confused about the taxes that I'm hearing that I'm going to have to pay if I do play in Vancouver, still confused about is anybody going to come on to see me play in Vancouver. So all those things in that press conference were all those things that's running through my mind. Yeah, that was Steve Francis. Do you remember how momentous that was? A lot of people cite that as kind of the turning point for the franchise. When we drafted Steve Francis and there was this idea that he did not want to come here, he certainly seemed reluctant, and he talks about all of that in this new movie called The Grizzly Truth. So joining us now is a director of the film. It's award-winning Filipino-Canadian filmmaker who is based in Vancouver, Kat Jamie. Kat, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me, Simi. How did you get access to all of this? Um, years of research, like picking up the phone, emailing, uh, DMing, LinkedIn messaging, Instagram messaging, and uh, just I was just on a mission and I wouldn't stop until, you know, um, people just <laughs> said yes and agreed to be part of the film. Now, I know there are some surprises in this, <laughs> right? That's things that you want to kind of keep on the down low because people have to watch the movie. Uh, mm. But for you, what was, can you tell us a bit about what kind of surprised you? What did you learn that you didn't know already? Um, I learned a lot um, on this journey. I, I've been working on this film for like almost a decade and dreaming about it for even more. Um, 
I learned, uh, um, what can I, what can I share that won't spoil the film? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I feel like I got closure after making this film and really? I'm, you know, you could, you could say that I'm one of the uh, uh, biggest diehard Grizzlies fans in Vancouver. Obviously I've made four films about the Grizzlies. <laughs> um, and, you know, after meeting everyone that I did, hearing their stories um, and traveling to certain, certain places, um, you know, I, I, I do feel a lot different than I did when I started making the film. And I hope, you know, that was my goal when I, when I made the film, like I, I also want other Vancouver Grizzly fans to, to feel closure. Um, I, you know, there's still a lot of uh, fans who feel angry about what happened. And so, you know, I, I feel, I hope that this movie is, can be also a healing, a healing experience for them. You know, I'm kind of in that camp. <laughs> so I still kind of sometimes feel that anger. In fact, I was watching part of the, um, the movie. And when I, when Michael Heisley shows up, in the movie, I felt it again. I felt that anger, yeah. that disappointment. Like, how do we get past that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think you just have to, um, we have to look at this situation as not something that's black or white. Like, it's a very complicated story. So much happened uh, within six years and so much, so much happened that didn't go our way <laughs> for the Vancouver Grizzlies. Um, and then I think it's also just, you know, um, I had to take my fan, you know, take my fan hat off and put my filmmaker hat on and, and I had to, you know, kind of meet the people in my film and and see them as human beings um and you know um that 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 called for you know a level of understanding empathy and respect and just you know wanting to genuinely wanting genuinely wanting to hear what they had to say and and their story and so what about the players the former players that you talked to how do they feel about their time in vancouver they loved it here. And that was one of the, okay, that's maybe one of the coolest things that I learned is that they all really loved it here. You know, a lot of them regret, uh, you know, would, you know, said to me, like, you know, I was really young back then and I wish I had known what I, what we had. Um, but, you know, there were, many of them were, the, were in their very early twenties. Um, and so, you know, everyone that I interviewed was like, Kat, how do you like how do i get me back to vancouver like how do you can you you know can you can you make it happen like how can you get me back and you know i'd love to come back and so that's one of the reasons why you know i've always wanted to kind of have this like public vancouver grizzlies reunion and and thanks to vif and basketball bc that that's happening this saturday oh boy okay tell us about that because seeing some former players come back i mean including steve francis which (laughs) as you document in in the movie that's a bit of a rough relationship with Vancouver fans. For sure. And again, you know, I'm hoping that this is a healing experience for both Steve and, and Vancouver uh, Grizzly fans. Um, but, you know, this is a celebration of the Vancouver Grizzlies. Um, so we have George Lynch, Tony Massenberg and Tony Harvey who are all coming in. Um, and uh, the the film is premiering at VIF at the Center Performing Arts at 2 p.m. We are sold out online. Our tickets have sold out, but you can, uh, there's no guarantee, but if you line up, you know, early, there might be a chance that you can grab a seat. If you haven't gotten a ticket, there, you know, no worries. There's another screening on October 5th, but um, there's going to be a public Vancouver Grizzlies re- reunion right after at 5 p.m. at Queen Elizabeth, uh, outside the Queen Elizabeth Plaza, 777 Homer Street. Um, oh, sorry, that's uh, 650 Hamilton Street. My my apologies. Um, and there's going to be, an, there's an outdoor basketball court that's being built uh, by oh, basketball. Fun. Yeah, there's going to be games being um, played by the Basketball BC teams there. 
Um, we have a lot of events that are being planned. I think there's a dunk contest that's being talked about that's going to be judged by myself and the NBA players. And you'll be and the Grizzly players will be there. So I encourage, you know, I, I've always said, like, I've told, I, I keep telling these players how much they're, they're missed and they're loved. So Vancouver, like, I really hope, you know, we show out and decked in Grizzlies gear and show these players how much they meant to us. Well, we all still have our, I know I still have it. I still buy Vancouver Grizzlies gear yeah. when I see it. What does yeah. that tell us, Kat? Like, what did you learn about the appetite for having a team come back to Vancouver? Oh yeah, I, I've always, I always, I've always believed that Vancouver um, is capable of being uh, an NBA city. I think it's um, only a matter of time. Um, you know, it's not an overnight thing. You know, I might be, <laughs> it might be a few decades before this happens, but I, I do believe that there is an appetite. And you know, again, look, we sold out this the uh, um, center performing arts. And, um, you know, we, we still have a few days to go before the premiere and we've already sold out. So if that doesn't show you like how much the city still, uh, you know, is obsessed with basketball, like I don't know what is. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that it can happen one day. Oh, I hope so. Right. Fingers crossed on that. OK, as you said, you've made four movies about the Grizzlies. What, what next for you? Is there another one? You know, <laughs> I, I'm working on a few other documentaries. Um, sadly, uh, this might be my last uh, Grizzlies documentary. Um, but I have uh, I have a documentary I'm co-directing with Asia Youngman about the Vancouver 2011 Vancouver hockey riots, and then I'm working on another documentary about Christine Sinclair. So those are two it's a great topic. Uh, projects. Yes, thank you. So those are two projects that I have on the go um, now that the this Grizzlies one is is wrapping up. Well, is there any way that you can show that devotion and take it all the way to the head of the NBA, Adam Silver, and show him like, hey, look at they still love their team? <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I think this is one of those events that can really help with our case to to bringing back uh, an NBA team. So again, like, you know, um, I make movies. I, I believe in the power of film, and this is why I make movies because I believe that they have the power to change things and start conversations. And one of the goals of of all these films is to, to help do that to to help bring about uh, a basketball team. So again, please come out, show support, especially, um, you know, we'd love to see you at 5 p.m. showing love to the Vancouver Grizzlies. Um, and yeah, again, come in your Grizzlies gear. Let's, let's, we're bringing back the Grizzlies for a day in Vancouver and let's really, let's just go all out. Okay, so where can people get more information about this? So they can go to vif.org um, uh, for all information. Um, and also there is a Facebook group um, that has all this information as well. You go, if you just find our social media channels, The Grizzly Truth and The Grizzly Truth Film, uh, we have all the information about all these events posted there. All right, sounds good. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. That's Kat Jamie, an award-winning filmmaker based in Vancouver. Her latest film is called The Grizzly Truth, as in The Vancouver Grizzlies, where she really dives into what happened surrounding the team's departure from our city and explores the idea of, like, could this ever happen again? Could it ever come back, a team for us? And yes, all those very important, significant moments, like when Steve Francis clearly... It seemed to fans watching the draft that he did not want to come to Vancouver, and yet he was drafted. She talks to Stu Jackson. I mean, she talks to a lot of people involved in that whole heartbreaking move uh, when they left here and went to Memphis, too. So you don't want to miss it. Uh, The movie is called The Grizzly Truth. And you know what? We're going to talk more about this, actually, because next week we're going to follow this story 
we will hear from former NBA All-Star and that infamous draft pick of the Vancouver Grizzlies at the 1999 draft, Steve Francis. Our producer, Jason Minos, is going to have that feature for us next week. So we'll be hearing from Steve Francis himself. Stay tuned. In the meantime, the movie is called The Grizzly Truth. This is Mornings with Simi. 